This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The big news locally is that the Festival of Friends is returning to Gage Park. Uh, been there since I think it was 1976, and of course, in the last six years, has uh, taken up to Ancaster Fairgrounds, uh, some locked horns, some locked personalities. I'm not sure exactly what happened. And, uh, you know, the point is, I guess it's all smoothed out now, so not many people are talking about it. But we found Graham Rockingham, uh, of course, music critic for your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there and at thespec.com. He is with us now. Hello, Graham. How are you today? I'm doing fine, thanks, Scott. Uh, so, what are your thoughts on this initially? Uh, it came as a complete surprise yesterday. I have to say that, and uh, and uh, I'm uh, I'm really happy because. Uh, are you surprised? Well, I was, I was shocked. It came out of uh, totally left field. Uh, you know, uh, I was sitting at my desk working away, and then somebody yells over at me, "Hey, there's a tweet that says." Uh, uh, a festival of friends going back to Gage Park, and I, my reaction was no. And sure enough, I looked at the tweet, and uh, and 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 uh, the festival had put this cute little video inside it of uh, what's her name, Skylar Gray singing "I'm Coming Home," hmm. and uh, over these over these uh, the scroll that announced that they're going back to Gage Park in 2017. I'm uh, I'm really happy about it to, uh, to tell you the truth. Were you aware that there were talks going on secretly about all of this? No. Yeah. No, no. No, I, I it, it just hey. And I, I talked to Matthew Green, Matthew Green uh, counselor for Ward 3. Yeah. Uh, which is home to uh, mm-hmm. uh Gage Park, uh, beautiful Gage Park. Um Tree Great uh, Gage Park, uh, just a great place to to, mm-hmm. to see a, sh- a concert. Um, and he told me that uh, he'd been talking to Lauren ever since uh, he got elected. And actually, you know, one mm-hmm. of the first things he did was uh, go over the park and with uh, uh, with Lauren, well, Lauren Lieberman, and uh, who is the general manager uh, of the festival, and uh, and 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 talk about what was preventing him from coming back to Gage Park. Um, there was all sorts of issues, yeah. And, and of course, nobody wants to talk about the bad days anymore when, when, when they were yelling at each other. <laughs> hey, happy days so, are here again. Let's yeah. move on, I guess, eh? Uh, yeah, and, and, uh, but yeah, there was all sorts of issues. There was parking. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was... Uh, uh, well, there was Gage. lots of talk that the festival had just simply gotten too big. So well, It I, was big. I mean, I, I remember the last few years there... On a Saturday night, it was just, you look out on the crowd, and it was just enormous. Yeah. So how do we, that being said, and and it's nice that, you know, all things are coming home and such, but how do you alleviate those problems? Well, that's a good question. I mean, they'll have more parking spaces there, but uh, I guess more people should be taking transit anyways, of course. Yeah. and uh, but do you book smaller acts? Do you? Well, that's you know. a good question, and I, I, and I would like to see that actually. I'm not sure if you know. I I go back to the very early days of Festival of Friends, and I think everybody looks back on those days uh, fondly uh, when it was more of a folk concert, um, when you didn't have big. Acts. You didn't have Burton Cummings coming in. You didn't have City and Color coming in. You didn't have uh, uh, these these uh, these acts that would draw huge crowds. And and 
I kind of liked it in small settings. I kind of liked it when there was many stages where you could see singer-songwriters in different parts of the park. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not speaking by uh, for everybody because uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people that would love to see um, the big names there or whatever you can get for a free show, anyways. But uh, yeah, maybe maybe we should be reducing our. Um, our expectations uh, for musical acts and just enjoy the park. Hmm. It, the park has so much. I mean, the, in the glory days of uh, uh, the festival, the park was one of the big uh, draws. Yeah, just yeah. the park itself. Exactly. And, and, and yeah. you know, Matthew, Matthew Green made a point to me. They were smaller acts and bigger parks. They were smart. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And and Matthew Green made a point. He's uh, that's a council that's very, very proud of that green space. It yeah. is one of the top urban green spaces in the country, certainly in Ontario. There's not not a lot of places have that with the old trees and things. So we've got to find a balance that will protect that, you know, without overrunning it and uh, uh, and and still being able to take advantage of it. So. Uh, here's what uh, Lauren Lieberman had to say on the Bill Kelly show earlier on today about this. Something has changed. Um, six years ago, Gage Park and the Festival of Friends were synonymous. Over the last six years, there have been lots of wonderful little events in that park. And the lack of the Festival of Friends or a suitable large replacement event was not filled. And I don't think, uh, let me put it this way, Bill. Had the Festival of Friends not left six years ago, we would not be in, in the working position we are now. We're, I'm not going to pretend that um, the six years have been perfect, but they were pretty darn good. Um, so it's not that, but Gage Park is our historical home. There you go. Uh, it, it does seem odd, even from a festival standpoint, to go back, which makes you wonder why they left in the first place. Uh, but mm-hmm. I guess perhaps they couldn't. You know, I, I guess this was always an option going back. But, uh, you know, it, it has grown up there. Um, maybe some want to keep something like that up there. Well, it's, uh, uh, well, that's, uh, any, any other promoter can try and do something like that. I mean, it does yeah. have it does have the fair, you know, the Ancaster Fair. Um, that for me was always the, the weird feeling about uh, festival friends at the fairgrounds. It just seemed more like a fair. Yeah. And yeah. and, and I, I it never felt quite right. Right. Um, but that's probably because you know you're taking this character out of this beautiful festival mm-hmm. and this beautiful park that's been there for a bazillion years, and then you're trying to recreate it in another more open setting. You're not going to have that kind of festival. No. It will be like a different type of exactly. festival. Right? And 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 it presents. The festival was a lot of challenges because one of the things that were great about uh, uh, the fairgrounds for the festival organizers, they had a huge beer garden there. Yeah. Um, and I don't think they'll have the same size uh, at Gage Park. The bigger the, basically with festivals like this, the bigger the beer garden, the more money you make in. Yeah. Because you're getting, you're getting a percentage of every beer sale. Um, the parking, they, I think uh, they had parking they had parking for thousands mm-hmm. i think as many as 7000 people in ancaster again they're getting money off of every car that parked there yeah good point so they're they're going to there's there's no doubt about it um they're going to have to find ways to to make up for that lost revenue um and they're going to have to be creative. Has it grown? I don't know who their sponsor is going to be. They're still working on all that. They're working on all these details. So. 
Has it grown too much in the last six years to go back? Oh, I, I, I think I don't think that's a problem. Um, um, I don't think that's a problem. No, uh, I, I, uh, although I suggest, and I, I suggested this earlier, that you don't have to have the the. The huge names. Yeah. Here, here's an interesting uh, email from Phil. He said, I'm delighted that Festival of Friends is coming back to Gage Park, but my question is, why weren't the 10 pressing issues worked out six years ago and thus preventing uh, the festival from moving to Ancaster in the first uh, place? Puzzled in Hamilton. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I've been, I was asking those same questions of people all day yesterday, and, uh, and I wasn't getting direct answers. But yeah. Well, I, Warren would say things like the landscape has changed, and that's the landscape of the park, which is true to some extent. The but, neighborhood, but has also changed. The, yeah, he was the, saying the neighborhood has changed. I, I'm sorry, I yeah. don't believe like all of a the sudden count, six years. The, the councilman whole, has changed. That's what. Well, that is a major, th- and yeah. that is what the yeah. neighborhood is in reality in this yeah. situation. The council has changed. For the councilor has changed for sure. Who made a priority to get the thing back and 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 get the city working with the festival in ways that they could put it on to both to mutual satisfaction? And uh, Jason Farr was also involved in this too, Ward Two, who actually lives right on the park, his yeah, backyard yeah. is on, yeah. the, on the park. So he's a big so we're all going to his house. Yeah, we're all good. Exactly. It's really what it is. It's Jason Farr's backyard party. So. <laughs> this just gotten simply out of hand. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I don't uh, have direct, there's little things I can point to, but yeah, it's just it's just one big love fest between uh, the counselors involved and uh, Lauren Lieberman right mm. now. No, that's good. And uh, let's Let's hope it stays that way. I was just trying to say, let's see how long that lasts. Yeah, let's uh, hope it stays that way. Uh, so what can the festival learn now? It's been six years. What can the festival learn, for example, from what Supercrawl has accomplished? Well, there's two different things there. There's so, two totally different things. But and in I the sense, it's still a lot of people in the downtown core. It's a lot of people in the down. Well, uh, you know, that's east of the core. Yeah, bit but still. This is not a street festival. No. And I, well, you got to find uh, uh, lots of sponsorship, and Lauren's always trying to do that. Um, and uh, you have to. I mean, I, I. It's hard to compare the two. And if anything, um, the success of Supercrawl creates even a bigger challenge for uh, uh, for people putting uh, um, on major events outside of the downtown core. Yeah. Um, we've, you know, yes, as Lauren said on, uh, on the Bill Kelly show, we've had plenty of Gage Park festivals in there, but none of them uh, have, attra- have attracted the sort of crowds that Supercrawl uh, has. Because it, Supercrawl offers so many other things. You know the the restaurants, the food trucks, everything yeah, yeah. that you can't put into a park. Yeah, yeah. But but there's a lot of great things of uh, 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 the Gage Park office. The super crawl can't. You know the big old trees, the yeah, shade, yeah. everything like that. Just park the, setting, yeah. Yeah, the, the, it's a different setting. So there's two. It's almost impossible to uh, compare the two. I. But even from a business plan standpoint. Get your sponsorships in order. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And. Uh, 
you, you, you have to do that. Now, what about, you? like, they're going to have to limit size, are they not? I mean, they're going to have to have an idea of this is how big we can go, we can't go any bigger. Mm-hmm. No? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, super crawl. How do you limit that? Exactly. Super crawl. I mean, you can't, you can't, there's no gate. You can't sit, sit there with a guy, like, at a Well, club I guess you, with determine a, with that with a, you determine that with the size of the act, right? I mean, the, the act will determine the draw, no? Well, that, yeah, even that is a problem. I mean, when they, when they booked the Sheepdogs and City and Color for that opening night in Ancaster, uh, when they booked yeah. them, who, who yeah. would have Good point. predicted Good the point. size of the crowds that were, they were going yeah. to draw? Because, you know, bingo, Sheepdogs broke. They're on the yeah. cover of the Rolling Stone on the day of the show. Yeah. And bingo, City and Color's album comes out, and it's huge. Yeah. So that was a bit of lucky. Uh, well, I'm sure Lord Lieber won't call it lucky, but that was, you know, you, I, when those bands were announced, I don't think anybody could have predicted the size of the crowds that would be coming. So is everybody happy about this? I, I got to tell you, uh, the, what I've seen, you know, the thumbs-ups and the social media and the response on it, I haven't heard a bad word. I've had people calling me and sending me emails from the neighborhood saying, we're so glad it's back. You know, and they said, they, even though the people from the neighborhood said, yeah, there were some crump, grumpy people that didn't like it here. Um, but we've run them out of the hood. <laughs> <laughs> According to Laura, yeah, they just disappeared. Big pop. But, uh, you know, so, it, it, yes, the, 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 I think the positive vibes about this move have been extraordinary. I, I haven't had angry people from Ancaster saying, get me back by festival. Um, and, and, uh, even, you know, I was talking to my son yesterday afternoon, who's an Ancasterite, and, uh, and he said, yeah, probably better back in Gage Park, you know, and, and mm. this is a, this is a kid that could, in his teens, could walk to the festival, uh, when it was at the fairground, so, so I, uh, I haven't heard anything bad, and, uh, um, uh, and, and remember, there was a petition that got like yeah, that's two right. thousand yeah. names. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Bring back our festival, and and uh, so so I, I I assume those people are all happy now and will return. Graham Rockingham has been with us, music critic for your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there and at thespec.com. The Festival of Friends returning to Gage Park. Thank you, Graham. As always, have a great day. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Shoppers Drug Mart has made a formal application to be able to distribute medical marijuana, which is very odd considering I remember doing interviews on this show, I don't know, about a year ago with the Pharmaceutical Association saying they wanted absolutely no part of medical marijuana. Uh, We have tried to get shoppers on the phone, but uh, no. That's not happening at this point. So we've uh, contacted Bruce Winton. He is the CEO of Canopy Growth, uh, which owns Tweed Incorporated, uh, the big medical marijuana producer up in Smith Falls, and is with us now. So your thoughts on shoppers getting into this game? Well, it, um, I, I think they started, they did that big cycle you described. When the hearings occurred five years ago, all of the pharmacy companies in Canada said we like not only do we not want anything to do with this, we don't even want to be mentioned in it. And so off we went and it allows us to start a business with now 25 or some number of thousands of uh, patients as our customers. And once you start to get to the stage where a bunch of people who are uh, maybe using some type of a painkiller or using some kind of uh, a nerve block, things that they were going to a pharmacy before to buy, quick 
doing that because they're getting medical marijuana. It means they're not going to the store to also pick up maybe some milk or makeup as they go through. Mm. And so I think what it indicates is the sector has become real. There's, we're approaching 100,000 patients in Canada in two and a half years uh, coming onto this system. And so what's happening is they recognize this is a real uh, piece of business, and probably it's a bit of a disruptor if you don't have it, and it's the product that people are switching to because it perhaps um, gives better relief to the symptoms that they're suffering with. So at the end of the day, this is about money. It's a business decision. I, I think so. Um, and at my side, you know, some of the uh, questions I had uh, today and other days about shoppers and others coming in is, is that uh, concerning to you? And, you know, my, my feedback was that, uh, frankly, it's quite validating that probably the, the biggest corporate family in the country wishes to now participate in a sector that only three years ago I could barely beg to have an investor come along. Hmm, isn't that funny? And, and so it is a big change. And I think what they're going to want to present is suppose you went in and you had um, – uh, some issue perhaps with uh, sleeping. And we were able to have gel capsules which contain cannabis and other uh, active ingredients so that a pharmacist could count out, you know, 100 into a, a container and provide them to you and describe that you would take one uh, 45 minutes prior to sleeping and it would give you, uh, you know, six hours of, of quality sleep. I think that's really where shoppers and, and Rexall and everybody else will get much more active. I don't think they're going to be the spot uh, where they sell, you know, just dried cannabis to someone and they have a few types. Uh, if you want a really funny video of it, go on to uh, YouTube and type in uh, this hour's 22 minutes, Shoppers Sells Marijuana. There is a terrific skit that kind of, I think, shows what they're not going to do. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, so uh, Shoppers has applied for a permit to grow, and we've tried to get Shoppers on, but they're not talking at this point. Yeah. Um, is that the avenue they have to go to distribute? Why do that? Yeah, I think it's a bit, um, the application process really is um, whether or not you're growing or not, you have to have a vault and a capacity to store and be approved through security. I'm almost certain they'll have no interest in producing or growing the product no further than they you know, own the cows that put the milk out to be mm. in their uh, dairy section. But they do have to have a license which allows them to be in the cannabis business, and that's a different license than the narcotics and other uh, medical agents they currently have. So this is less about growing and just about the handling of it and the storage yeah. of it all. I would expect so. And, um, you know, two years ago, if I was on your show, I would be describing the fact that there are hardly any doctors in Canada who know about this. And, and over the last two and a half years, we've visited on about sixteen to 18,000 doctors and done all kinds of education with them. And um, two years ago, I would say there's almost no patients, but if they become a patient, they pick, you know, Tweed or Bedrocan and register with us, and we mail the product to them uh, through Canada Post. And that was just starting. You know, now you're dealing with um, a level of customer interaction where we have 10, 12, 15,000 uh, phone calls a month with people who have a lot of questions about uh, how to access, why to switch from other pharmaceutical ingredients to this. And it's probably because of that traction that you're seeing some interesting actors come around. Hmm. Uh, so do you think we will, and I guess as far as you're concerned, you're growing it, so the more distribution, the better, no? So that, is yeah. that good? Well, I think so. And, you know, as far as I can tell, this is entirely about the medical part. And yeah. right now the medical part's just beginning in the sense that there are a lot of trials being done and, and studies to make sure that which types and at what time and what format become targeted towards, whether it's an arthritic pain or uh, it's dealing with sleep issues or you name it. Um, there's a whole new other thing which is coming and it'll start being announced in November uh, about recreational access. And I'm reasonably certain that the recreational sale products are not going to be presented in uh, a drugstore. 
I suspect you'll find those more likely in something like the LCBO or a private sector equivalent. And that there'll be multiple ways that the product ends up in the market, but also that the format for REC could easily look like something uh, that's a, uh, you know, a beer or a distilled spirit, but it has no alcohol in it. It's purely a THC um, equivalent. So, um, will if if in fact, well, or when this becomes legalized as a recreational drug, will there still be the demand for medical marijuana? Yeah, because what happens over time, um, there has been about a hundred years where you couldn't do much research as to how do cannabinoids, which is what's in cannabis, interact with our body and give us you know relief from certain symptoms and activities. That work's going on now, and so we have in our facility. Uh, a piece of equipment that makes gel capsules, and that those gel capsules have various types of cannabis in it, which some are very good for arthritic pain relief. Some are very good for, say, um, dealing with possible sleep issues. I think what you're going to find is medical over time becomes a combination of studies and format, whereas recreation is going to become a thing of brands and uh, really a competitor to alcohol. Hmm, interesting. Uh, Can you list or give me another drug that is sold by prescription and sold recreationally? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a pretty unique thing. Um, it, it's one of those things, if you go back in time, you know, even alcohol, and still today, you can actually get a prescription, I believe, for beer. But this is, a, you know, it's about $100 a bottle or something, I'm sure, if you get it that way. This is um, kind of like something that got suspended in a time lock for about 100 years. And that's because about 100 years ago, America said, uh, marijuana is bad stuff. We're going to put it on a prohibition list. And before you know it, um, countries who were using it in a normal course, including England and to an extent Canada, followed suit. And so what's not happened is a great deal of the potential research that relates to what, when, when we talk about cannabis, inside of a typical strain, one type of marijuana, it will have as many as 115 to 113 different types of cannabinoids. What do they each do? How do they interact with us? Which ones give uh, what effect? Has not been structurally studied in a proper way and is now just happening as uh, the, the world sort of permitting it. Hmm. Um, medical strains much different from recreational strains? Um, well, it depends what your ailment is. So, you know, we'll deal with people perhaps, um, somebody's going through uh, an oncology, a cancer treatment, and they'll be dealing with pain and nausea. Um, those are uh, different target outcomes than if someone's going to a comedy club and wants euphoria. Mm-hmm. But it can be a bit in terms of the dosage and a bit in type in terms of the strain. Uh, but they, they do have, um, I will say increasingly, we have the ability to target the purpose. And so it kind of, you can picture a time, maybe a year, a little bit more than that from here, that um, you might go into the LCBO and you might be presented with a Tweed product and it would be identified as something pretty good to go to a comedy club. And you might go to shoppers, say, and we might have a topical cream that competes directly with some of the other uh, pain agents that are kind of over-the-counter. And, uh, you know, you'll have a choice to use uh, a cannabis-based pain cream or one of the traditional ones that you would, uh, you know, already know. Um, And I guess a lot of people, including me, uh, didn't realize or think much or give much thought to other products that, that some place like a shoppers would sell. Um, as opposed to just actually selling the marijuana, you know, to consume however you wanted to consume it. 
Yeah, it is um, probably the biggest disruptor every day. You know, you could do a show five days a week about people who've had some problems because of too much uh, access to opioids. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. it's a Canadian uh, news line, but it's a global question. And so you can see that um, there's going to be a medical transference where yeah, I bet you'll see in a couple of years where uh, unions will negotiate the preference to not have any medical resolution involving opioids because, you know, an injured worker... Uh, can often become an unable to go back to work or because the treatment of the injury turns into an addiction. Yeah. And whereas with cannabinoids, that's a much uh, lower risk, very low. And the effect is um, you get pain mediation, but you don't necessarily uh, completely knock the person out with the uh, with the medicine. And so I think you're going to find um, over time there's going to be an awful lot of pressure to transition from some of these pharmaceutical things that we just trust because they came from a big company in the form of a pill. Mm. Uh, to things that start looking similar in format, but having a much less dangerous profile. Um, you know, you bring up a valid point that there hasn't been a lot of research on this, um, and and now uh, obviously it's positive that that is starting. But what if we find out in ten years that you know people are going to look at this the same way they look at smoking or the consumption mm-hmm. of tobacco? Um, is there still the chance that five years or however many years down the road, they'll say, no, 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 and there'll be a campaign to stop this like there is smoking. Yeah, I think I think this is going to be generally treated more in the recreational space uh, like alcohol, which is going to be along the lines of responsible use. Mm-hmm. The, the, the only upside of smoking is the possible taxation collection. It would appear that no matter how much taxes we collect, the health harm exceeds the cost in cost, the gain that we get from the taxes. Um, I think you're going to find with this, cannabinoids, the reason um, people don't, uh, see a profile of overdose and death as a uh, typically or ever associated thought with cannabis is we actually have natural uh, cannabis or uh, we want to call them uh, receptors in our body. And so I think what's going to find is that smoking is a bad idea, but there's many ways to consume this that aren't smoking and that uh, it has a much less uh, harmful profile. So for example, if you have too much alcohol, of course, it, it can turn into a death and it metabolizes through your liver. And there's a number of things that, as far as you know, weight gain because it's sugars and therefore it's tough for diabetics to access stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't face the same thing with cannabis. And so I think what we're going to find over the next decade is that there's a whole bunch of myths based on myths that are based on myths. And, and, and I'll be clear, like I, I am a person who understands this product. I'm not uh, advocating as a... I use this every day, and I think it's terrific. In fact, I um, have made clear that I'm not a customer of my own company's product because I have no illness that would give me the basis of accessing it. But I think that there's an awful lot of stuff that's been wrapped up over 100 years of prohibition that as we unravel it, we'll think, that was nuts that we thought smoking and drinking were good ideas, and this was a bad one. Hmm. Um, uh, obviously, there, as you uh, pointed out, two separate industries here, a recreational and a medicinal um, uh, avenue. How much different will the distribution be? Will we see medical uh, be through pharmacies, much like what Shoppers is, is talking about, and recreational distribution, uh, more like an LCBO type outlet? Or do you think we're going to see uh, an entirely independent outlet which just services uh, marijuana, both recreationally and uh, in medically? Yeah, I think in the short term, uh, the next three years, we're going to have three three methods of distribution. The current and only one is that people register with a producer and they receive the product directly by Canada Post. And I think that will continue because there's quite a, a huge array of types of cannabis 
and they're not likely to be all available in any one particular store. So patients will have that. I think you'll see shoppers or someone like that having a medical brand. And I think in Ontario, love it or hate it, I think it's going to end up in the LCBO. Hmm. And the reason I think that's the case is this is a direct disruptor and competitor to alcohol. Yeah. Um, the LCBO has a pretty good track record of asking anybody under the age of about 72 for ID. <laughs> and um, they don't, no matter how much money you have, you have a difficult time buying illegal moonshine-type products in the LCBO. Mm-hmm. And so when you go around Hamilton, Toronto, Ottawa, all across the country, these dispensaries, which uh, have no lawful supply and no regulated product, have opened up so frequently and, and are so uh, sort of visible. I think um, ultimately the politicians are going to first want certainty before they let the private sector back in. Hmm. What can we learn from how the U.S. has done this? Um, having been pretty close in watching it, uh, all we have to do is keep doing what we're doing, which is the opposite in every way to what America has done. Why is that? What, what's so, the, tell us how so it's opposite. So, honestly, if I was heading up organized crime, I couldn't have come up with a better plan than the one America is currently running. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that because it's federally illegal, in every state they have different rules, and some rules, some states it's not permitted. Because it's federally illegal, you typically can't use things like, say, bank accounts and credit cards. Uh, because it's federally illegal, when you make more money, so suppose you're in a Colorado and you grew your business from $2 million to $10 million in sales, you have to pay full federal tax on the $10 million without deducting your incremental cost of running a business. So there's no uh, permitted expenses to be deducted. It's kind of like if you're a bank robber, you can't deduct the cost of your gun and bullets. Right, right. Um, and so the effect is it gives a whole bunch of incentives not to be very transparent. And that's helped further in that in Canada, I use a firm called Deloitte as an auditor to generate the statements and I list on the proper stock exchange. In America, you can't get Deloitte because it's a federally illegal thing, so who knows right. what the books say. And you can't list on a, tr- a stock exchange because it's illegal. Uh, in America, you can't patent or trademark anything related to marijuana. In Canada, we can. So it's everything is... Um, sideways, small, and poorly structured, and it's quite helpful to tweed and uh, canopy because we're hopeful that we can get to be as good or better than anybody in the world at doing all the steps necessary so that when and if America opens up, maybe after we've been active in Germany, Brazil, and Canada, we'll be able to go to America with some strength. Can they put this genie back in the bottle, or are they still in the process of figuring out how they're going to do it, and that in turn will change the way it's being run now? Well, I'd say that, you know, CIBC's economist thinks there's somewhere around $7 billion of marijuana sales currently happening in the country and have been for years, and it's all going to largely criminal elements, for different types of criminal. So the genie has been out of the bottle a long time. Hmm. And the only parties that benefit from going backwards are the guys who are the bad guys. Yeah. Um, so the, the real question we have as a society is, Do we wish to continue to ignore the reality of massive sales of unregulated, untaxed, uncertain product, or are we going to kind of tidy that up? And and I think generally when it's put that way, it's not about whether or not anybody's in favor of marijuana. It's everywhere. It's whether or not we actually like to have orderly systems and proper structures, which I tend to think Canadians prefer over just complete random chaos. Um, when people are uh, people obviously go to doctors, get prescriptions, then of course they are filled through you and then sent to the customer via Canada Post. Who pays? How expensive is it? Is there room for insurance companies in this? Will we see that one day? Well, they're good questions. I hope I'm being a good guest, but um, the, <laughs> you are the, so far. That's why you're still on. <laughs> the um, 
So uh, insurance companies, as much as they may or may not care uh, exactly how you're doing, what they do like is to have you get relief at a less costly basis for them. So many of the pharmaceutical uh, items that you may use for an arthritis treatment are multiples, many multiples more costly on an annual basis than cannabis. So I think insurers will like and want and seem to be quite keen, and they've begun supporting this on the basis of a substitution of a less costly solution for a more costly one. Uh, Who pays for it? Depends. If you're a uh, soldier or former soldier with the military, you get coverage for 100% of your cost. If you've been in a car accident and your car is being repaired by an insurance company and you need this, increasingly you're having access that way. But still the balance of the people uh, gaining access pay for it out of their own pocket. Um, When we grow it inside very large facilities with super high security and all the things we do, our production costs, because it's on a big platform, are quite a lot less than the illegal grow in, say, a house in the outskirts of Hamilton. Hmm. And um, so the effect is if you buy it from, say, Tweed, your cost per gram purchase delivered to your home is probably somewhere between 30 and 40% less costly than buying it in the dispensary, and you know what you're getting. So th- there's room for probably a 20 to 25% tax when they make it uh, recreationally available and still be very cost competitive to the black market. Uh, do you think the prices will be too high and that will keep the black market in business? Uh, only if tax. So right now, nobody regulates price. It's a highly competitive environment between the producers. And so, you know, you'll have, um, you can have delivered to your home if you had, uh, say, modest financial means and can confirm that. For about $4.80 a gram, you can have delivered to your home uh, certified, uh, registered Canadian legal cannabis. Uh, that's a phenomenally low cost compared to any of the U.S. geographies or the black market. And, and so I think you're going to find the feds really don't, don't want to tax more than 25% because their principal purpose is to manage uh, the black market out of business, not to just get a short-term tax gain. Will they price fix like they do with alcohol? Uh, I think they may limit how strong certain types are in the recreational market initially because over the years people have been able to increasingly grow cannabis that is much stronger than say, multiply stronger than what might have been in uh, the market in the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, frankly, the recreational market, I think, is going to be very large for stuff which is not so strong and balanced and gives someone a, a sort of a equivalent of a glass of wine uh, rather than uh, much stronger. And I think that the very strong uh, products will probably potentially have some restriction to medical access, because if you're trying to help someone off of opioids because they had an industrial accident, they do, in fact, need some uh, stronger uh, strains. Uh, Bruce Witten has been with us, CEO of Canopy Growth, which owns Tweed. Shoppers Drug Mart has made a formal application to be able to distribute medical marijuana. Bruce, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Hey, it's great. We have one down in uh, Niagara-on-the-Lake, Toronto, and in Smith Falls. So we've got three across the country now. And obviously growing. Yeah. No pun you. intended. <laughs> okay, bye. Thanks, Bruce. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We talked about this story yesterday. A nurse was charged with murdering eight nursing home residents, uh, which is sort of asks or certainly makes people wonder what the rules and regulations are regarding hiring of staff that care for seniors and are we doing a good job looking after seniors in this province to talk more about all of this graham webb is with us staff litigation lawyer with the advocacy center for the elderly in ontario and he is with us now hello graham how are you today hello scott i'm great how are you good thanks for taking the time to join us tell us about the advocacy center for the elderly in ontario what is this organization about 
Well, the Advocacy Center for the Elderly is a legal aid clinic. We specialize. We do nothing but elder law since 1984. We're the uh, first elder law clinic in Canada. And by the way, I just spent 21 years as a staff litigation lawyer, but uh, this month I'm now the executive director of the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. So is this obviously an issue, an organization that is growing considering the age and the demographic is growing? Oh, yes. Uh, what's growing faster than our organization, though, is the demand for our services. We um, have always given legal advice, referrals, and, and representation on long-term care issues. We have staff dedicated to do nothing but that. And the, uh, the demand for um, advice and, and representation coming out of long-term care uh, problems is through the roof. So this situation involving uh, the nurse in Woodstock, obviously we don't hear about this every day, but is this an anomaly or is this a wake-up call that we have to be paying closer attention? Well, I'd like to think it's a wake-up call because it's not an anomaly. I came to this clinic in, in 1995, Scott, and the, one of the first cases I dealt with was um, a fairly young man with a physical disability who had a complaint that he was sexually assaulted by a male staff member in the shower. Hmm. And, uh, you know, he was embarrassed and ashamed by this. He, um, he was depressed. He told his family members who brought it to the attention of the long-term care home. And uh, uh, the family suggested they call the police, and the long-term care home said, no, don't do that. We have to do our own internal investigation. And, of course, that's not the case at all. You can always call the police in that type of situation. But back then, in 1995, these things were happening. They were happening before then. They're still happening now. And at that time, the attitude was just shove it under the rug. And we've seen many, many cases since then as well. I've seen um, women sexually abused by male staff. In fact, in 2011, there was the case of Danae Chambers, who was a long-term care resident who was uh, sexually assaulted by a male nurse who was caught in the, <clears throat> caught in the act by other staff members. Mm. And he was convicted of sexual assault, did jail time. But that sexual assault might have gone undetected without uh, other staff members on the floor who came noticed what was happening. Mm. So um, abuse of some form happens more than what we realize. Abuse and neglect. Um, you know, the... Uh, What's being reported, and of course we don't know what the facts are until until the legal process winds its way through, but uh, it sounds like it was uh, uh, essentially an allegation of euthanasia, of a, of a nurse administering medication is my understanding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, that happens, but much more common than that is also a risk of medication errors due to ne- negligence that go completely undetected, you know, because medication errors due to negligence are much, much more common than deliberate residence abuse and without more staffing and better inspections, resident neglect, including potentially fatal medication errors, are likely to go unnoticed. Do you think this, and again, obviously we have to be uh, aware that these, these, none of these allegations have been proven in court yet, but with this current situation in Woodstock, are you just generalizing and saying that some are about euthanasia or referring to this one specifically? Because um, I, I think it's I'm more... speaking generally, right. Scott. I, I don't know anything at all about this case other than what's reported in the media, right. and I can't comment on the particular case. But we um, deal with a great many of long-term care cases, 
And I, uh, what I'm speaking about is what what we are seeing. Um, you were talking about some situations where it appears to be euthanasia. We're not talking about this situation. Let's clarify that. Um, uh, does that happen? Is that happening frequently, I guess, is my question. And um, if we regulate this more, will that happen less? Is this also a call for um, need in some sort of a legislation regarding assisted uh, death with, through a doctor? What it's a need for is to have more staff on the floor that, that you know, long-term care homes sometimes have a single registered nurse on duty for the entire home, and this is not enough. There should be more registered staff to uh, support and to assist each other because without more staff, uh, a rogue staff member working without supervision or assistance would have the opportunity. How about just not having a rogue staff member, period, rather than having, you know, I mean, shouldn't there be something before having an extra worker there to witness it? Shouldn't there be some sort of screening put forth ahead of time to see if this person, uh, you know, more intense background checks? Wouldn't that make more sense than than actually trying to, to stop it after the person's in the building? Well, I think there already are background checks. There's a uh, there's a zero-tolerance policy for resident neglect and abuse throughout long-term care homes in Ontario, and that includes, you know, when you're, when you're hiring staff, having some background checks. But when, even once the background checks are performed, um, you know, you, you still run into problems. It's been happening for a long time, and if homes were able to predict exactly when this would happen, you know, they wouldn't have that staff member on duty in the first place. But if the staff member... Is, is working entirely alone and has no one to work with or to, to help and assist them, then they have the opportunity to uh, uh, neglect or abuse vulnerable residents without detection. There's also other things that need to be done, such as I think the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care needs to do more full inspections of long-term care homes. We, I think we should expect that the Ministry will do a full inspection of every home at least once per year, but they don't actually do that. Are there enough guidelines for senior care at this point? Is, is this something that we have to look at in, in whether it's this scenario uh, and, and, and checking backgrounds of, of staff or uh, to, to, of course, making sure there's enough staff and then even the way we care for these people? Is this something that really needs to be addressed as this industry grows? Scott, we have lots of guidelines. We have very strong laws in Ontario that should protect long-term care home residents from neglect and abuse. What we're lacking is, is resources. You know, um, for example, uh, this has nothing to do with the case of abuse of a resident by a staff member. Uh, there is also the issue of resident-on-resident abuse. We've seen that last week uh, mm-hmm. uh, with a, a trial starting in Toronto with a charge of murder laid against one long-term care home resident in connection with the murder of another resident. And there, uh, the issue is in part the lack of specialized units. These are units that um, have uh, the resources, the staffing and resources, to give proper care to potentially violent, demented older adults who need long-term care, but also uh, need a, a higher level of care because of cognitive deficits, they may be prone to violence. And so what we find is it's hard for residents to get into long-term care if they have tendencies toward violence. And, and once in long-term care, if they, if they uh, need specialized care, 
there aren't sufficient units to house everybody who needs that. So I see it more as an issue of of, uh, of resources. Where do we allocate our resources? Now we're we putting enough resources into the care of long-term care residents. Uh, a lot of these facilities are privately run. How, how does that change the equation? Not it doesn't change the equation at all because long-term care homes is a, a legal term that describes uh, a privately owned nursing home. It also de- describes a uh, home for the aged that would be owned and operated by a municipality or a group of municipalities. And it would also describe a home for the age that would run, be run by a charitable corporation. All of these, uh, in, all of these homes are long-term care homes. They are licensed and funded by the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care, and uh, they all receive the identical funding. And uh, so, we expect that the uh, uh, you know the funding that's dedicated to long-term care should be used primarily for the care of the residents. We expect that's happening, but there's not enough, not enough funds put in to do all the things that need to be done. So are all, uh, are all retirement um, homes of some sort, uh, whether, they're, whether they're private or municipal, are, do they all receive government funding? Well, retirement homes are not long-term care homes. And the, the case we're hearing about yesterday and today uh, concerns uh, allegations of uh, homicide within a long-term care home, which is a health care facility. It's funded and licensed by the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. So are all There's long- another category of care, which is a retirement home, right. which is uh, really residential rental accommodation. It's governed by the Tenant Protection Act and mm-hmm. also by the uh, Retirement Homes Act, and it has its own uh, self-funded body, the Retirement Homes Regulatory Authority, those are more akin to, those are tenancies that are, that are a different category. They're not long-term care. Are there not facilities, though, that combine the both? There are places that have both a long-term care home and a retirement home right. on the same site. Right. But the two facilities are distinct, and the one we're dealing with this week is actually the long-term care home. Right. But there are retirement homes, too, you know. And what we're finding, Scott, is that the profile of older adults who are going into actual long-term care homes, the nursing homes, the home for the aged, mm-hmm. what we're finding is the, the, the profile of needs is much higher. Yeah. There's a, a, a higher percentage of those residents are cognitively impaired than ever before. The care needs of the residents are higher than they've ever been before. The demand is high, and, and we're finding very, very high care needs within the long-term care home. And that spills over into the retirement homes because... You know, retirement home is a a very broad category. It includes people who want to go into a uh, a registered or a registered retirement home uh, without any real physical or mental uh, disabilities or impairments, but simply want to live in congregate living, uh, receive some assistance with certain things, including meals, and you know, might be just tired of cutting the grass. Might be, but there are also a good number of retirement home residents who would qualify for admission to long-term care, indicating that they have, uh, you know, they have very high care needs as well. And in general, uh, retirement homes are usually privately funded. They're, you, pay, you, you, you pay for what you get. Right. 
and they don't have access to the same source of public funding from the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care that a long-term care home would have. So, but long-term care homes are, so are they generally uh, private, but then funded by the government? They're both. Every municipality is required to have a a long-term care home in the form of a home for the aged, and municipalities do have these everywhere throughout Ontario. Um, There are many, many privately run homes. I would venture to say that the the majority of long-term care homes are privately owned and operated, and they are all under the uh, licensing and supervision and funding of the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. Would they receive funding from both that ministry and the the resident themselves? Yes. Um, When someone goes into long-term care, the Government of Ontario, through the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care, will pay for all of the residents' care needs, the nursing, the, you know, the, the, the professional services they need, the health, the, right. uh, you know, the health care aids and so on, dietary. The resident is required to pay what's called a resident co-payment, mm-hmm. which essentially amounts to the cost of the meals and accommodation. And so there is a, a regulation as to the maximum amount that can be charged for meals and accommodation, and that's the amount that the resident pays in addition to unfunded services such as um, the cost of actual medications, things like nail clipping. You know, um, many long-term care residents have special needs that they need to have their nails taken care of professionally. They aren't able to do it themselves, and that cost is not paid for by the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. If they want to have a television, they want cable in the room, they need to pay for their own cable, their own, their own telephone, those sorts of things. I guess my question here, Graham, was as you, as you transition from a retirement into a long-term care home, uh, if, if that is the case, does the level of care change with how much you pay? It depends. Well, first of all, uh, Scott, many people go straight into long-term care from the community. Mm-hmm. You know, they may be living right at home. Yeah. Usually it's preceded by uh, something that interrupts their pattern of living. It may be a, a fall and a broken hip. It right. may be an illness, something that results in a hospitalization that then leads to a, a long-term care admission. Or it may be just that the person has been planning for admission to long-term care and gone straight from home. Uh, on the other hand, uh, some people go into a retirement home and never go into a long-term care home. For those who go from a retirement home into a long-term care home, the cost of long-term care home is is very much standard. It, you know, it, it right. doesn't vary from facility to facility except for unfunded services. That is not true for retirement homes right. because there's no limit to how much care a person can purchase in a retirement home, right. uh, someone who would qualify for long-term care and is has a lot of financial resources uh, could receive excellent care in a retirement home, but it may cost a lot of money. On the other hand, there are many low-end retirement homes that um, charge less than what a long-term care home would charge, and uh, the uh, services are spread pretty thin. Graham Webb has been with us, staff litigation lawyer with the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly in Ontario, talking about care, senior care in Ontario. Graham, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.